Hello, and welcome to the Respiratory Care Podcast for March of 2020. March's Editor's Choice Paper is a multi-center retrospective study from 10 pediatric ECMO sites. Friedman et al. attempted to define the optimum strategy for ventilatory support during ECMO. Pediatric subjects on venovenous ECMO over a five-year period were included. They report that 75% of the subjects remained on conventional ventilation and that pressure settings were not related to survival. FiO2, even after adjustment for disease severity and the number of ventilator days prior to ECMO, were in fact associated with worse outcome. Reddick provides an accompanying editorial highlighting the finding that subjects with both high SpO2 and high FiO2 showed a diminished survival compared to subjects with high SpO2 and low FiO2. She suggests that the therapeutic window for oxygen in pediatric ECMO may be more narrow than previously appreciated. Juan and colleagues studied the impact of conventional oxygen therapy in high-flow nasal cannula and body position on the distribution of lung volumes as measured with electrical impedance tomography. In a group of subjects following abdominal surgery, high-flow nasal cannula improved end expiratory lung impedance in the ventral and dorsal lung regions compared to baseline. On the other hand, head of bed elevation further improved end expiratory lung impedance in dorsal, but not ventral lung regions. High-flow nasal cannula was associated with improved patient comfort. Nishimura opines that these findings are not surprising or necessarily unexpected. High-flow nasal cannula, and more importantly, elevation of the head of bed results in improved pulmonary function. He notes that EIT provides a new tool to evaluate lung function with the distinct advantage of visualizing regional changes. In a bench study, Deonarda et al. demonstrate the impact of the site of oxygen delivery to a portable ventilator on the delivered tidal volume. This work reinforces the effect of oxygen supplementation on tidal volume measured, displayed, and reported by the ventilator. Telemedicine certainly holds promise in a number of care scenarios from the EICU to home care. Data provided for interpretation, however, must be accurate, and this study includes knowledge that can only be obtained by direct observation. Where's the oxygen implemented in the ventilator? Rodriguez provides commentary on modifications to medical devices, the importance of skilled caregivers in the home, and assuring that what you see is in fact what you get. Again, this study is not novel in terms of the addition of oxygen to the circuit and the augmentation of tidal volume, but it does bring home the important issue that when we submit information via telemedicine, we have to know that it's accurate. Pixoto and others describe the use of ultrasound to evaluate lung dysfunction in subjects with cystic fibrosis. Ultrasound has become an increasing monitoring tool for patients with lung disease. They compared lung ultrasound to pulmonary function testing and the modified BALA score. Lung ultrasound correlated well with the highest resolution computed tomography evaluated by the BALA score. Lung ultrasound had significant correlations with pulmonary function and nutritional status. The author suggests that lung ultrasound may be a non-invasive and very useful method of assessing status in patients with cystic fibrosis. Miura et al. described the use of ultrasound to evaluate pharyngeal residue in the upper airway, the presence of which is associated with aspiration risk. They studied 35 subjects with dysphagia and demonstrated that ultrasound images compared well with fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, providing a non-invasive method of evaluating aspiration risk. Ultrasound is a number of uses in pulmonary disease. Cho et al. tested ultrasound assessment of diaphragmatic motion during PEEP titration in subjects with ARDS. 
They compared dorsal and ventral diaphragmatic excursion during peep titration based on creation of both a positive and a negative transpulmonary pressure. They found that the dorsal region of the right hemidiaphragm was affected by PEEP-induced changes and that ultrasound assessment using anatomic M-mode was useful in the specific measurement of dorsal diaphragmatic excursion. This pattern of motion is dependent in dependent regions of the diaphragm during PEEP titration in ARGS subjects achieving a positive transpulmonary pressure may reflect a potential target for assessment of lung recruitment. Saeed and colleagues evaluated the dose and aerodynamic characteristics of salbutamol from pressurized metered dose inhalers using different spacers and holding chambers. They found that anti-static accessory devices, including a disposable device, optimized the mass median aerodynamic diameter. The same authors have a second paper evaluating a smartphone application for counseling asthma subjects. They compared groups who received advanced counseling or, or simply verbal counseling. Inhalation technique and lung function improved in both groups but more advantages are seen with advanced counseling, including the smartphone application. Hartman and others evaluated a provider opinion of decision support tool for weaning from mechanical ventilation in a pediatric ICU. The decision support system was based on the ArgeNet protocol for hypoxemic respiratory failure. They compared physician and respiratory therapist assessment of the tool's recommendations and whether the clinical staff would implement these suggestions. Only a third of recommendations would have been implemented by the ICU staff who preferred to make no changes and felt that the recommendations were often too aggressive. Schlosser and colleagues performed a three-year-long retrospective chart review of the use of non-invasive ventilation in a pediatric ICU. They found a diurnal pattern of non-invasive ventilation use with an average of six hours of continuous use before the first interruption. Approximately half of subjects began NIV use after 7 p.m. and a similar number interrupted support between 5 a.m. and 10 a.m. They conclude that NIV was frequently interrupted and initiation and discontinuation of NIV followed a diurnal pattern. Burgess and others conducted an E-Delphi study to identify priorities for education and advanced care planning for COPD subjects. After two survey rounds, they developed 40 statements regarding advanced care planning assessed by a five-point Likert scale. Consensus was considered to be achieved with a score of greater than 80%. They identified a clear need for training that addresses the legal issues surrounding advanced care planning and discussions with patients suffering from COPD. Tonovicius et al. used a 33-item survey to evaluate students' knowledge of electronic nicotine delivery systems, e-cigarettes. They found a general lack of knowledge regarding secondhand vapor effects and that use in young adults was primarily due to peer influence and stress relief. They conclude that education from respiratory therapists and with respiratory therapy students would be valuable. Dota and colleagues performed a 16-question survey regarding neuromuscular blockade, use in ARDS, including indications, frequency of use, and dosing strategy. Over 90% of respondents practicing in academic medical centers. They reported using neuromuscular blockade in more than half of the ARDS subjects. The most frequent indications were to achieve lung protective strategies, and improve patient ventilator synchrony. The results of this study is interesting as the most recent ROSE trial, despite its limitations, failed to show any advantage of neuromuscular blockade in the treatment of ARDS. Kang and others contribute a systematic review on the use of high-flow nasal cannula in immunocompromised subjects. This is an update from a paper published two years ago in Restorate Care. They relied on eight studies compromising over 2,000 subjects and conclude that high-flow nasal cannula may be a feasible alternative to non-invasive ventilation 
to reduce intubation compared to conventional oxygen therapy without increasing the risk of ICU-acquired infections. However, high-flow nasal cannula did not reduce mortality compared to traditional oxygen therapy. Lou et al. contribute a systematic review on home-based breathing exercises in COPD. Using 13 trials, including nearly 1,000 subjects, they found that home-based breathing exercises had a positive impact on pulmonary function, respiratory muscle strength, exercise capacity, dyspnea, and health-related quality of life in subjects with COPD. In a special article, Rich Calais provides guidance on developing a research program within a hospital-based respiratory care department. Rich's experience and successes provide a template for mentoring and practical steps in developing a research program in your department. Rich's paper is equal parts practical advice and philosophy as only Rich can write. We appreciate your subscription to the Respiratory Care Podcast and your support of the journal. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.